Hello everybody. How are you all? Good. Huh. That was a good barbecue. It just went on a little bit long. It's lovely. Hi Jeff. <laughs> I just followed him. I just followed him. So as I can refer to the same pages as you're referring to. Okay, good evening everybody. Hands up if you have never heard of Clifford Geertz. Okay, good. The other people in the room have heard of him? Yeah. Oh, you haven't heard of Derrida? Oh, that's... If you have heard of Clifford Geertz. If you have heard of Clifford Geertz. Okay, all right. Well, that's an interesting choice of a... How many of you had never heard of Wittgenstein? Oh, I feel so good. All right. So if you haven't heard of Geertz, that's your problem. All right. So Clifford Geertz is probably the most important anthropologist of the, of the second half of the 20th century. He died about two, two three years ago. Um, to my utter astonishment, I never knew this, he was born Jewish. Um, he was brought up. He was, his parents gave him up for adoption. And he was, he, he, he was brought up in a Christian family. But like many adopted kids, he, he went looking for his birth parents, uh, discovered his birth parents were Jewish. He never, you know, he never returned to his birth family, but he had a, a very complex and ongoing relationship with, with his birth parents. He was a very, 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 very influential and significant anthropologist whose um, area of study was particularly um, Indonesia, and Morocco, those were the two, the two countries that he spent most of his time in, Indonesia and Morocco. He has the most, his, probably his most famous collection of essays is called The Interpretation of Cultures. But there's a bunch of other books. Um, Local Knowledge is another one that I think is remarkable. Um, and the most famous essay that he ever wrote is about Balinese cockfighting. So anybody, it's the most famous Clifford Geertz piece is his analysis of obviously the human, I don't think he analyzes the, the actual cockfighting. I think he's more interested in the, in, the, in the human side of what's going on around. It's in this collection, a phenomenal essay on Balinese cockfighting. And I'd like, to, I'd like to use Clifford Geertz as a way of, of drawing a conclusion to it. what is really a series. It's an odd series because we started talking about Wittgenstein several months ago. And then we had our, our session on Derrida at the beginning of this week, and now we're talking about Geertz. But just to warm us up and just for me to digest the barbecue that Jeff, that Jeff um, gave me, um, I'll, I'll, I'll start off with, with, an, with an anecdote. Um, there were, I, I actually had the wonderful pleasure of, of spending three very intensive days in a conference with, with Clifford or as he liked to be called, Cliff. I just couldn't do it. Uh, he, was a, he was a permanent scholar in the, in the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton. So he was a very senior, very, very senior American intellectual um, who I had known for years and taught about as Clifford Geertz. And when I was introduced to him, I put out my hand and I said, I'm Alec Isaacs. And he goes, Cliff Gertz. I went, Gertz? <laughs> you pronounce it Gertz? 
So that was my first lesson in how to say his name. The other thing was that during the course of our, our conversations, we had these very intensive conversations, there were about 15, a group of about 15 intellectuals stuck in a room in Saratoga Springs in, in upstate New York. It was unbelievable. Everybody was talking, and there were really, there were interesting people there. Sarinu Seba was there, and Yisrael Yuval was there, and Carolyn Walker Bynum was there. A whole bunch of interesting people were there. And Cliff Gertz sat in the corner, excuse me, leaving the microphone for a minute, but he sat in the corner like this. He was an old man. I thought he'd lost his marbles. And he had, he had um, snuff. No. He had snuff all over his jacket. And, and, and uh, it was really weird. And I thought the man had completely lost it. And then at one stage in the conversation, this happened several times, and I realized who I was dealing with. At one stage in the conversation, he puts up his hand and he says, I'd like to say something. And he, he, he started speaking. And in about seven sentences, he summarized absolutely everything that had been going on for the last three hours, sliced through it with his own comments, and totally changed the entire conversation. I don't think I've ever been in the presence of anyone more intelligent. It was absolutely unbelievable, the lucidity and the clarity of his thought. And he just sat there slumped in the corner, and you thought he wasn't listening. But my God, what was going on? And he's really, he was really remarkable. And I was very sad when I heard that he, that he, he died a number of years ago. Now, the reason I want, to, I want to, to talk about Geertz is, I mean, there are many, many, many interesting things um, that, that connect to Geertz and his work. But the thing that I'm interested in is to look at Geertz as a, as a postmodern anthropologist. And to think, using Geertz, I suppose, as our third, as our third thinker, to try and draw certain uh, slightly broader conclusions um, about what might be the connection between these current trends in contemporary thought and something, that, and something that runs, I think, very deeply in the Jewish tradition. It's a little bit different from the stuff that, we've, that I've spoken to you about so far. So I know you're all very familiar now with Wittgenstein and Derrida and deconstruction and getting rid of ethics and all of that. You've got that under, you've, you've got that stuff sussed. That stuff sussed. So I want to I want to give you a different a different angle, and to look at a different issue, um, which I think is one that that um, that also resonates very deeply with the Jewish tradition and touches on things that I think are meaningful and important for us to understand in our times. The fundamental question that anthropologists have to deal with. Um, is how do I understand the culture of another, of another person? How, how do I make sense of another person's, another person's world? Of course, the, the, the scene or the, the theme that, um, that brings this question out is the theme or the experience of the anthropologist visiting in another world and trying to, and trying to understand it while at the same time recognizing that the process of understanding this other world that I'm encountering is actually a process of translating what I observe in this other world into a language that is already familiar. So if we're going to talk about this in binary terms, and I'm not a big fan of binary thinking, but if we're going to talk about this in binary terms, I can talk about two poles on a scale. At one, end of, at one end of my scale, I have the strange, the different, the other. And at this end of the scale, I have the familiar. 
And part of the process of understanding and re-articulating and describing is, of course, to, to look at things which are strange, which are unknown, and to be able to present them and articulate them for the folks back home, right, in a way that will then be accessible to them and will then draw the experience of, of difference and otherness towards the pole of the, of, of the familiar, right? I'll just, to give you a little bit of a hint where I'm going with this, because I'm, I'm going to talk about something that's really methodological here, but to give you a little bit of a hint where I'm going with this, I think the same experience that anthropologists encounter when they go into another culture, that's the experience that, that historians encounter when they go into another period, right? When I go into another period in time, I read a text that comes from another period in time. Um, one of the things that is so striking that I encounter in that other period of time is the otherness. What is normal in another culture in, in a, at another time, at another point in time, can seem very, very strange to me. And the job of the historian is somehow to analyze this and, 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 to, and to preserve it, while at the same time bringing it home so as I can understand it in, the terms, in terms that make sense to me. That's what I do when I write up an observation and put it into academies, right? Or I look at a historical text and articulate it in modern terms. And just to go that little step further, the vast majority of Jewish learning, the vast majority of Jewish learning is opening up a canon of literature that simultaneously, for the most part, comes from another place and from another time. So when we read the Babylonian Talmud, I know it's, it, we all, grow up on it and we know it off by heart and I'm sure you know everybody feels very familiar and comfortable with it and it's just you know it's it's what you have for breakfast but the truth is that even though it seems so familiar and so and so homey I'm I'm laughing I'm kidding it's not familiar to me either it's hard work but but when we look at it we have to recognize that we're we're, we're journeying into a distant world and also into a distant time and the same thing will apply, I think it perhaps applies more powerfully, and the problem is harder to overcome when we read the book like the Bible, where it really is familiar. And we really do know these stories, and most of the stories that we encounter in the Bible are stories that we know from before we knew how to read. So our encounter is with something that we think is deeply familiar to us. But of course, however it has been composed, let's leave the theological questions of the, of the first four books of the Bible out for a minute and just say we're looking at the book of Judges or something. It's been composed in a different place and in a different time. And we are, we're, we're dealing with the challenge all the time of what does it mean to understand something and to make sense of something that has been composed and and, and held its original meaning in a completely different context. So this is the question that the anthropologist struggles with. Now the anthropologist who is a little bit sensitive to the, to the culture and is perhaps interested in it or maybe enamored by it, enchanted, um, realizes that when he writes it up and translates it for his readers in the modern world, it's losing all of its authenticity. Uh, what, what he describes, the moment he starts pulling out his, his western scalpel, right, and, and slicing up the information and categorizing it and putting it with footnotes and comparing it to what Claude Lévi-Strauss had to say and comparing it with what, with, with what um, Turner, Victor Turner had to say and comparing it with what Mary Douglas had to say and comparing it with what this one, that and the next one had to say, then, then we're moving into an academic discourse, we're using, moving into an intellectual discourse which is clearly 
pulling us away from the authenticity of, of the culture that we're, trying to, that we're trying to understand. The flip side of the coin, and there are people who tried to do this, and there are Jews who tried to do this. If you follow my analogy, this whole thing is an analogy. I'm giving you a, a mashal here. The flip side of this is if you go native, seems to be the most, uh, most authentic thing to do, right? You go, go absolutely native. Get, go into that dances with wolves thing, right? Really get into, get into the other cult. Did anyone ever see Shogun? Do you remember that from the 80s? Yeah? You absolutely go into, it doesn't matter if you didn't, it was just an example. You absolutely go into the other culture, you go into the other world. Then, then you seem to lose your capacity to, to relate anything back because the native, in inverted commas, doesn't, doesn't have the ability to articulate what the observer can articulate. He just, or she, just is. They're doing what they do, and, and they do it unself-reflectively. It just, it just is what it is, as I've heard people say around here. And, and that, becomes, that becomes a trap that you can't, that you can't, that you can't break out of. So there's this, there's this tremendous sense of inauthenticity that if I become authentic, I lose, I lose any, any justification for actually being involved. I don't need to be there. I don't need to watch. I don't need to, be any, I don't need to observe. I'm just there. I'm just doing what I'm doing. But on the other hand, if I report, the actual act of reporting, explaining, characterizing, categorizing, quantifying, observing as an outsider, is by its very nature an experience of the, the, the crumbling away. It's, it's like speaking with water in your mouth. And you're trying to hold the water, you're trying to speak at the same time, and as you do so, you know that the water is dribbling out. There's, there's just no way you can do both, you, there's no way you can do both things at the same time. And you find, yourself, you find yourself in a very, very awkward and difficult situation. Now, Geertz was one of the Geertz. I, can't, I still can't say Geertz, even though he did. Geertz was one of the, was one of the anthropologists who I think um, made a very, very significant breakthrough in, in, in how we can think about this and how we can, do about, and how we can deal with this problem. And his breakthrough, even though it's, its intentions are to overcome the question of how the anthropologist can observe and report, I think his breakthrough has deep methodological implications for how we can live as Jews in a modern world engaging with a tradition that evolves outside of our modern world and is honestly, deeply foreign and strange to us. And what kind of a relationship can we have with that tradition that allows us to remain relevant, to speak in our own times, to belong to our own culture, to participate in our own societies, while at the same time not sacrificing our sense of authenticity, an authenticity which is rooted in, in, an, in an, an otherness. So if we look at the familiar and the strange as, as, a, as a, binary, a binary dichotomy, and I told you I don't like them very much, so I'm going to break them down later on, um, we can say the same thing about, about, about authenticity and relevance. Right? What, what I consider to be authentic, what I consider to be relevant. By definition, at the end of the pole of authenticity is something that is inaccessible. And we've all participated in one of those shiurim, right? You might be participating in one right now, this second, as I speak. But that's when the speaker is trying to be authentic. 
And in the process of feeling so responsible to the subject matter that he wants or she wants to talk about authentically, got a whole bunch of people in front who just don't know what you're talking about, right? So I'm, I, I, I could imagine it happening with somebody trying to talk about Clifford Geertz to a Jewish audience in Orange County, but I was actually thinking of, I was thinking of, you know, when you go into one of those Gomorrah shears, you know the type, right? And, Oh, the taste and, and it's authentic and it gives you a flavor of something that's authentic but you don't know what's going on but then when, when you explain it and when you translate it and when you communicate it and when you convey it I think you feel that feeling of, of losing losing the authenticity and losing access to something that really is worth delving into because it's not already familiar to me. It's, it's challenging me because it's coming from somewhere else and it's, and it's therefore, therefore going to give me something that I don't know already. So what I'd like to do is to look at this question. I'd like to philosophize about it a little bit, if I may. I'm going to you know, pontificate and philosophize a little bit about it. And as I do so, I hope I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make a little bit of progress along the way to painting a methodological um, attempt at dealing with this, which I think, A, is a very interesting model for thinking about what it means to be Jewish in the modern world, but B, it will allow us to address a question that I think has been under the surface all the time in this series, which is what is the Jewishness and what's the connection with Jewishness um, um, that characterizes the kind of thinking that, I've, that I'm now talking about for the third time. So here we go. Geertz was a, was a, I think one of the most interesting essays that Geertz wrote, one of the least known ones, it's not a famous one, he wrote an essay about Thomas Kuhn. I've, had, I've mentioned Thomas Kuhn once or twice in various different sessions. I mentioned, I mentioned this book, right, The structures of, structures of Scientific Revolutions. I know I've mentioned it once or twice. But one of the things that, that Thomas Kuhn talks about in his analysis of how new scientific ideas kick in, how do new scientific ideas gain credence? How do new scientific ideas become accepted? Right? And his argument is that the process is not through a, an accumulation of rational argument that convinces people, but rather there are all kinds of social processes that lead certain theories and certain ideas to become appealing to large, large communities. What is interesting in Kuhn's analysis is that he talks about different groups of scientists, right? I'm just going to give you, as an example, a group of Einsteinians and a group of Newtonians, right? What Kuhn argues is that these two groups, when they belong to different perceptions in science, find themselves in a condition that he calls the condition of incommensurability, which is the condition of not being able to speak to each other. They can't speak to each other. You might apply it to Republicans and Democrats, if you like, right? It's just two groups of people. I, I know, I, we had a conversation last night, but I'm not, I'm not a Democrat, I'm an Israeli. Um, we had an interesting conversation about that last night. The, um, the, whole, the whole question of can two people who not only come from different cultural contexts, but actually come from, from their, their worlds are furnished with entirely, with entirely different furnishings, 
or decorated with entirely different decorations. And so their, their whole sense of orientation and grounding in the world, the things they see, the things that they notice, the things that they're conscious of, the things that are constantly, we all know this, that once we've made up our minds about something, you just need to drive around for a couple of days and there's so much proof to support that you're right, right? So we all experience that. You have your own convictions vindicated by your experiences all the time. And that's something that happens to people, right? Can people who are on different tracks, having their observations vindicated all the time, can they actually ever communicate with each other? What, or, or are they living on, on, on two separate islands, or they're, they're locked up in two separate bubbles, and they're never going to be able to understand each other. So I can say this about Republicans and Democrats, but I can say it about Orthodox Jews and Reformed Jews, and I can say it about modern Jews and pre-modern Jews. Do we actually, are we actually capable of understanding people who live in another cultural context? Is that, is that something that's possible? Kuhn argues that there is incommensurability between two sets of worldviews. And Geertz comes along and writes a fascinating analysis of Kuhn's notion of incommensurability. And he divides up the world into what he calls right-wing Kuhnians, and left-wing Kuhnians. It's a great distinction. You heard of this? Right-wing Kuhnians and left-wing Kuhnians. Right-wing Kuhnians live in their bubbles. And they are totally locked and totally convinced that it's absolutely impossible to communicate with others. People who share the same worldview can communicate with each other. They can respond to the same things that they encounter in the world. And they'll have the same experiences in life that will vindicate the same preconceived assumptions. But your left-wing Kuhnians, as opposed to people who just think that anybody can talk to anybody all the time, which is of course not the case, right? Your left-wing Kuhnians are conscious of the deep, of the depth of the obstacles and the significance of the obstacles the almost insurmountability of the obstacles that prevent people from understanding each other and believe that there are mechanisms, they believe that there are things that can be done so as people can actually pass something across, relate to each other and understand each other. Now that, that's the way it plays out when you talk about anthropology. When I go to another culture, can I actually get something authentic and bring it back into my world without losing all of its authenticity? when I sit down and read a book. So the author isn't actually there, right? He, he wrote the book a long time ago. Perhaps he wrote it thousands of years ago in a completely different world. When I sit down and read it, can I, can I communicate with the author? Is there such a thing as being able to break through the boundaries of my experience and communicate with somebody or understand something from somebody Who's, who's come at me from this, from this distant world and is completely out of my reach. I, I don't really, I've got no way of reconstructing anything about that person's world other than the remnant that's in front of me on the page. What, what do I do with that? How, 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 can I, how can I actually reach through my understanding of the text to, to, talk, to, to talk to somebody else who's, who's perhaps trying to communicate to me his understanding of what he is trying to express as he puts it into words? and never really manages. We know that, right? When you write, you never really manage to say what you wanted to say. It's never really the expression of what you're trying to say. 
Sometimes you go, hmm, I like the way that turned out, but it's not really what I'm... You can be very proud of what you've written sometimes. It doesn't happen very often, but you can occasionally be very proud of something you've written. You go, hmm, I like that. But, but it's not really... It surprises you as much as it surprises... as it would surprise anybody else, because it's not necessarily a simple reflection of what you were thinking. Can I get through that and actually communicate with somebody else? Can we understand each other? Can the different cultural codes ever be, ever be overcome? Can we learn stuff that will help us overcome? I'll give you an example. When I first came on Aliyah, I think it's a really interesting example. When I first moved to Israel, I, um, like, many Isra like many new immigrants, I decided to hold on to my British passport and not change my status and become an Israeli for a number of years. I held on to my, I actually still have my British passport, but I, 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 didn't, become, I didn't become a naturalized Israeli. So if you don't become a naturalized Israeli, you have to go through this ritual of every three months, it's hell, turning up at the Ministry of the Interior and extending your visa. Right? Sometimes you can get three months, sometimes you get six months, sometimes whatever. So I remember a new, a new arrival in Israel, a couple of months after I arrived, going to the Ministry of the Interior and trying to find, trying to find it. It's in Jerusalem. Those of you who know Jerusalem, on Rechov Shlom Tzion HaMalka, many of you have been there and have sad memories, I'm sure. It's a miserable place. It's a miserable place. But I remember going there, having no idea where it was, and going up to this old Yemenite man and asking him in my politest Hebrew, excuse me, can you point me to the Ministry of the Interior? And he goes, Shama. So I, I don't know what that means. So I'm looking at him and I said to him, I don't understand. Where? <laughs> I told you, you don't, I don't need to translate, right? I told you it's over there. So by the second time, I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm really a nudnik now. I mean, I'm, uh, but I don't know what to do. I need to get there and there's nobody else to ask. So I really don't understand. Can you tell me where it is? He starts screaming at me. What do you want from me? I told you where it is. Very frustrating. I remember telling this story as a story about how rude these people were. And then I read this fascinating book. And it was, it was called The Hidden Dimension by a fellow called E.T. Hall. And it's about gesticulations in different cultures. And what he argues is that in different cultures, different people point in different ways. That in, in Western civilization, the way we point at things is by extending our fingers and pointing at them. Right? So everybody knows at every given point who I'm pointing at in the room. Right? It's clear. So that's what I wanted to know. I wanted to know that Ministry of the Interior was there. But there seem to be other cultures in which people draw circles around the things that they're pointing at. So I could actually point at something by doing that. Right? It's over there. And I'm not capable of interpreting that when somebody says the shama. But the truth is that when I thought about it afterwards, it was right opposite him. I was so annoyed when I actually found out where it was. Because I, why didn't you just point to the other side? Of the, I was right there. But what, it, what I now think he might have been doing is drawing a circle around it. He, he was actually gesticulating in the right direction and saying, Zishama. And I didn't know what that meant, but that's, do you see what I'm saying? I don't know, maybe I'm just being, being you know, nice after the, after the fact. And there are pe perhaps people in the room who prefer to reach the first conclusion and decide that all Israelis are very rude. <laughs> Which is, of course, true. But the point, the point, the point was that, that there seem to be skills and tools that we can acquire 
for breaking into somebody else's context, for breaking into somebody else's subjectivity, for gaining an understanding of, of what it is to make sense of, of, somebody, of somebody else's worldview, and of actually, of actually being, being capable of communicating. It's a fascinating, fascinating study and an interesting idea. Now, Geertz came, came up with a way of doing this. And, and what I've given you here is a whole essay. Um, it's a whole chapter. Um, but I'm not, sure, I'm not sure how much of this I'm going to actually force you to read out now. I have a tendency to give you things so that you can look at them afterwards and in the hope that getting, getting something of my explanation will then allow you to have a look at it and make sense of it. But Geertz comes up with a structure. And the structure that he, that he comes up with is called thick description. Thick description. Now, thick description is a really, really, really interesting anthropological technique. I promise you, you'll see how this all connects up to the Jewish world pretty soon. Thick description is a really, really interesting anthropological technique because what thick description presupposes is that the problem with our, our attempts at describing others is that we categorize, we define, we quantify, and most importantly, we explain, right? We explain. Now, when we explain or define something, we're making an assumption that Goethe calls into question in a sort of post-Wittgensteinian mode, for those of you who remember what we were talking about Wittgenstein, that we can talk about different levels of language. And then we can talk about one level of language which is just descriptive and another level of language which, which goes on to a higher level. We can talk about a sort of a language and a meta-language. And the meta-language will, be, will, be, will provide explanation for a lower level of language. So I will look at things and I'll describe them and then I'll carry on just using more words. But I'll assume that in my more words I'm reaching conclusions which go to the heart of the matter. I'll give you a description and then go into a definition, an explanation. And once I've given you an explanation of something, it's become accountable. And once it's become accountable, it's become demystified. I've made sense of it. And I've told you what it's really all about, and I've touched its essence. And Geert says, don't do that. What we should do is describe as thickly as possible. Describe and re-describe and re-describe and describe something from one angle and then describe it from another angle and then describe it from on top and from underneath. Go from position to position to position to position. Put yourself in as many different perspectives as you can. If there are seven different players in the ritual that you're writing about, then write all about it from the perspective of the observer. But then try and write about it from the perspective of the performant. And then try and write all about it from the perspective of the secondary performant. And then try and write about it all from the perspective of the child of the performant who's watching, etc., etc. And the various different participants at various different levels, from angle after angle after angle after angle, try and provide as much descriptive information as you possibly can. So as the cumulative experience of describing something so thickly and in so much detail allows you to gain a multifaceted perspective which ultimately leaves you in a place which is as as far as possible completely non-judgmental it's 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 like making it's like making enough noise to get back to to get back to an experience of of the raw silence that was there before it's as if if i write so much 
and I write about it from so many different perspectives, I'm actually, I'm actually getting back to something which is authentic and the way it was before I interfered. The best example I have of this from movies, I like using movie examples now and again, is from that phenomenal movie about Jackson Pollock. Did anyone ever see that movie? It's one of my favorites. Ed Harris plays Jackson Pollock being commissioned by, by Guggenheim to paint a painting. You familiar with this? And there's this amazing scene where he's got this huge canvas on the wall. And the canvas is white and unadulterated. And he doesn't want to touch it. He wants to leave it pure. And there's the sense that saying anything about this canvas, putting anything onto this canvas, maybe this is, I'm giving this a little bit of Perush Alec, but I think that's what was going on in the scene, is that saying anything about this canvas, putting anything onto this canvas, is going, to, is going to violate it, rather than leaving this beautiful, unadulterated whiteness on, on, on the empty, silent screen. So you see him folded up in the corner, barefoot, looking at it from one angle, right? And then, and then it's done beautifully. It's a wonderful piece of film. And then you see him on the other end of the room looking at the canvas again, right? He looks like he really needs a cuddle. But he's sitting there suffering and tortured and looking at it from another angle. And then you see him a little bit later on in another angle. And this goes on and on and on and on until all of a sudden there's this burst of energy. And he pulls out a black paintbrush and he draws these, these, these symbols. It almost looks like a sentence in Chinese or something. He draws these symbols it, with, with vehement energy. He, he draws these symbols on, on the canvas. And once he's finished, he pulls out another paintbrush and he paints over them. And he paints squiggles and lines all over them. And then he, then he goes to another one and he draws more and more and more and layer over layer over layer over layer. It's like he's, he's painting and painting and painting and painting and painting, layer over layer until you, can, you can't see the original sentence anymore. This original, these original symbols are, are hardly showing through. And he's painting and painting and painting, layer upon layer upon layer upon layer upon layer, until he finally flops down and, and, and you get this sense of the incredible wonder of this creation that's in front of him. He's managed to paint a painting which is full of color and full of genius and full of beauty, but it's, it's, it's as overwhelming and as unadulterated as the white canvas that was there in the first place. So there's this sense of having said something and having performed an act of translation, there's clearly a transformation. There wasn't a painting and now there is a painting. But it's, it's an act of transformation that leaves me with a sense that, that, that what has been produced is as pure as what was, nearly as pure as what would have remained inviolate if nothing had been painted on the canvas at all. So, this, is, this, I think, is a, is a lovely cinematographic example. It came out in the end. Cinematographic example of what Goethe is talking about when he talks about thick description. It's as if the, the multiple perspectives, the writing, the coloring in, the, the, the description in, in overwhelming detail is going to leave us back lead us back to what was there before we interfered, before we, before we got involved. And that will allow us to take something home. The, the, an analogy that I think, another, I'm going to work on analogies here before I tell you where I'm going with all of this. 
An analogy that I think really captivates it for me is the analogy of um, the hermeneutical theory of Hans-George Gadamer. Hans-George Gadamer is, a, is a, one, of the, one of the great German thinkers um, of the 20th century who was really concerned with this question. His, his, whole, his whole career was dedicated to trying to understand how can I actively understand something and believe that what I am understanding is authentic to the, to the text that I'm reading. Because the minute I understand it, the minute I reconceive it in a way that connects with my own thinking, I've taken it away, I've taken it away from its original source. That's a really, really challenging and difficult problem. And Gadamer's answer to the question is to read the text over and over and over and over and over and over again accumulating experience in the reading of the text. And as I accumulate experience in the reading of the text, I become less dogmatic, according to Gadamer. My assumption would be that if I've read something a thousand times, now I know. Don't, don't, don't tell me what's in it. I've read it. I've read it a thousand times. I know it backwards. But the truth is that somebody who's read something a thousand times, when he reads it in the thousand and first time, sees something else. He sees something new. It's like that road that you drive along every single day. And you go along the road in the morning, and you come back in the evening, and you go along the road in the morning, and you come back in the evening, and you know every corner of the road, you know every shop, you know every little stand, everything that's on the road, you know, backwards, and you don't see anything new until one day you're driving along exactly the same road. You see something that's always been there that you've never noticed before, and you go, ah, where did that come from? The answer is that it came from outside of yourself. Because the depth of your familiarity is what allows the other to shine through. It's because I know this so well that I know that when I see something that I never saw before, that something isn't coming from me. It needs to be coming at me from somewhere else. If my fear when I'm reading a text is that everything I read is just a construction of my own understanding, when I read a text over and over and over again and, and accumulate experience with it, and then that moment comes where I see something in it that I've never seen before, and I go, whoa! I never noticed that before. The thing that I never noticed before has to have come from somewhere else. That's, that's the surprise. Gadamer talks about understanding as surprise. It's, it's the experienced person who is capable of being surprised because of his familiarity, because of the intensity of his familiarity. In the same way, these are all analogies. In the same way, what Geertz is doing is saying that the detailed description the detailed analysis from all of these different angles in the field notes of the, of the scholar allows the scholar to then go back and read the text and read it from all of these angles and when he has a moment where he goes, ah, I didn't notice that. I've even written it, but I didn't notice it. There's something there that I hadn't thought about. It's there and it's coming at me from the outside. It's coming at me from somewhere else. It's not me. So this would be what, what Geertz would describe as a left-wing Kuhnian position. It doesn't mean that I can simply and easily enter into the understanding of the other. I can't hope to do that. Because I'm active 
in my understanding. But what I can do is generate such an intense encounter with something that is so profoundly familiar to me that I say it over and over and over again. I read it over and over again. I drive along it over and over and over again. And as I become more and more experienced in it, I move away. This is counterintuitive. But I move away from being dogmatic and I become much, much more responsive. I become much more sensitive to what it is that is going to surprise me. Okay, I think I've drawn this out for long enough to tell you where I'm going. The two primary practices of the Jewish tradition, the two most common primary practices of the Jewish tradition, could I get a little bit more water? The two, the two primary practices of the Jewish tradition involve recycled text reading. We read texts over and over and over again. The words of the Shmona Yisri, just for an example, right? The words of the, of, of the 18, 19 benedictions that we say in the daily prayer, thank you very, very much, are words that we recite three times a day, day after day after day, throughout a lifetime. The reading of the Torah. It's not that big a book. If you were to sit down and just read it, then you would be able to go through it, I would imagine. Average, I don't know how many hours to read you get a day, but let's say it would take you a week, and you could finish it pretty comfortably. But we divide it up into chunks. We divide it up into chunks. Some people divide it up. I've discovered here quite more that it gets divided up into small chunks that are read over a year, over three years, where, where, where I so we divide it up into slightly bigger chunks that are repeated in an annual cycle. And you read this text, you read this text every Shabbat, and you read it every Monday, and every Thursday, and then on Shabbat morning, and then on Shabbat afternoon, and then again on Monday, and then again on Thursday, and you read it again and again and again. And there is an additional practice that perhaps some of you are familiar with, called Shnaim Mikra Ve'echad Targum. Has anybody come across that term? It's a, it's a very well-known, you've come across that term, right? Nobody knows? It's, it's a well-known Jewish practice of reading the same text twice before Shabbat and then reading it in translation. So in translation, there are different ways of, of understanding what that means. You can either read it with the commentary of Unclus if you want to read it into Aramaic translation. I think it's a little bit more reasonable to sit down and read it in an English translation in the context in which we live. If you need permission to do that, you have it from me. Um, or what other people do is to, is to call the commentary of Rashi a Targum, a translation. And so you read, the, you read it with, with Rashi. But what we do is obsessively read over and over and over the same passages of text. Now there are people who study the Talmud, there's this program called Daf Yomi, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of it. You do it, God, that takes gumption. <laughs> you have a will of steel. I've given up several times and I'm never gonna try again. It's just, I don't know how people do it, but it's a page a day. 
a page a day. It's absolutely unbearable. You have to get up at five in the morning to do it because the, you know, all the people who do this are the type of people who get up at five in the morning to do it. I'm just not one of those people. But you, you study a page a day and the idea is that you go through a cycle and every six years you, you go through the whole Talmud. And that's the structure of it. But whether you do that or you just engage in the reading of texts, we have a very, very specific canon of texts that we read over and over and over and over again. It's astonishing. Now, the assumption might be, when we think about this, that it's very, very dogmatic. What are you talking about? Why just read the same books? Go, go to the library, read something else. Go and read a little bit of Wittgenstein or Kuhn and Goethe. Don't, don't go around. Don't go around reading those, those, those Jewish books all the time. What is, this, what is this almost mantric practice of reading and rereading the same body of literature over and over and over again? You know, in, in, in certain Jewish communities, particularly amongst Yemenites, uh, the practice is to learn this stuff off by heart. And the education of kids, which is often a little violent, right? They, the the Mori is the is the Yemenite teacher who has a little has a little strap which they use liberally. And all my Yemenite friends tell me childhood trauma stories of how they were smited over the head for. But what they what they are doing is learning off by heart a text that, that in ma in many in many cases the, the the children are not even taught to understood to understand. You read it over and over and over and over. And that's perhaps part of the experience here for people who read Torah, right? You learn to read it, you learn the notes, and, and you read Torah, right? Vishinantam well, I was just going to get there. You read it over and over and over and over and over again. And this idea of reading it over and over and over again, as Nira says, is, 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 the, essence, is the ethos of learning. Because the term, the word that is used in the commandment to read, and learn is vishinantam levanecha vedibarta bam beshiftecha bevetecha uvelechtecha baderech uveshochbecha uvkumecha. Vishinantam is the same word as shnaim, meaning two. It means you read it over. The ethos is not to read something once. And vishinantam doesn't even mean you read it twice. The, the, it, its root is the same as the word shnaim, meaning two, but the ethos is reading and rereading and reading and rereading and rereading and rereading. And our assumption might be that this kind of reading and rereading is ultimately dogmatic. But I think the suggestion is a little otherwise. Now, before I tie it up, I'm, I'm sure it's pretty clear where I'm headed with this. I actually want to talk just for a minute about, about, about the Talmud which is this brilliantly important Jewish book that unfortunately many, many people in our times find very, very inaccessible. But the reason we find the Talmud so difficult to read and so inaccessible is because it isn't systematically trying to clarify or identify anything. It doesn't define stuff. It certainly doesn't reach conclusions, as I've said on a number of occasions. What the Talmud does is it takes a question, or it takes perhaps, a, a, some, sometimes, not always, it takes a passage in the Bible, or a concern, or a precedent of some sort, and it puts it out in front of you in a little concise statement, you're supposed to do this, you're not supposed to do that. Whatever it is, the, the text that's being put up for discussion 
is read and reread and read and reread and read and reread and recited in, a, in an almost ritualistic way. The Talmud will take something and will analyze it from angle after angle after angle after angle, looking at it from this point of view, and what about that, and what about under these circumstances, and what about in this case, and I've got a story about this rabbi who did it that way, and I remember that the same rabbi did it a different way, but that's because you watched him on the first month, day of the month, and you watched him on the 15th day of the month, and you know, it'll, it'll be constantly drawing out these, these repetitions and these rehearsals and these distinctions and these recountings, and this experience of churning over the same legal detail and comparing it with another one and then bringing it into the conversation and establishing a network between them and then, and then is that a good comparison but this one thinks that way and that one thinks this way. What I'd like to suggest is that there is something very, very thickly descriptive about the way in which the Talmudic discourse takes place. It's an example of not reaching a definition, not reaching a description, Sorry, not reaching a definition, not reaching a categorization, but reaching a repetitive description. And you're describing and re-describing, portraying and re-portraying, and opening up multiple avenues for further description, for further discussion. There isn't that much conceptualization in the Talmud. We today, in, when we're engaged in Talmudic study, try to conceptualize the text that's in front of us. That's a revolution that took place in the 18th century. There was one individual, his name was Chaim of Brisk, and he developed a new method for studying the Talmud. It's fascinating, it's very interesting, and it's about trying to categorize and, and, and define and to make distinctions. But it's not actually the way the Talmudic text itself operates. It's a fascinating way for understanding it today. It's actually the way I prefer to study Talmud. But it, it doesn't actually mimic the, the Talmudic method in and of itself, which is, which is so repetitive, so recycled. Coming, you, if you want to study any subject, you can find the same material popping up in 15 different places in the Talmud and in different contexts. It's quoting itself all the time, repeating itself all the time, and making connections all the time, which gives us this sense of this, this churning over of a multi-dimensional, multi-perspective blanket of description. Now what I, want to, what I want to put out here, what I want to suggest is that there is, a, there is a structure here or a method here or a way of thinking here that is designed through detailed observation, detailed description, repetition, participation, recycling, to have the effect upon us of opening us up to the possibility of being surprised. That we develop an encounter with something that becomes so familiar that through that familiarity we actually prepare ourselves for these incredible moments when something all of a sudden pops up and reveals itself to us. In other words, by becoming so familiar with the language of prayer, to use that as an example, 
When we have those moments where we're reading that same verse of Tehillim that we've been reading every morning for the last 35 years, and all of a sudden, boom, a sentence comes alive that, that we'd never paid any ten attention to before. That striking experience is the one that gives, that gives prayer its dimension of contact with something that's beyond ourselves. It's when, it's when we are struck by what was there that we could have seen a thousand times and never did, that we recognize that something is coming at us from outside of ourselves and, and we have an uplifting moment. Same thing happens in Jewish scholarship. What, what does Jewish scholarship value? This notion of en bet midrash lelo chidush, that we study and study and study and repeat and repeat and repeat and recycle and recycle and recycle until all of a sudden we notice something. We see something. We think of something. And it all, all of a sudden, it all comes, it, it all comes alive. It all comes to light. This immersion, I remember the experience of being in yeshiva and, and studying a page of Gomorrah when I was a young fella. And I couldn't, I couldn't crack it, I couldn't understand it. And I'm thinking, and I'm translating all the words, and I'm analyzing, and I'm trying to understand it, and I don't get it. And my teacher said to me, I'll never forget this, sit down with it, and just read it over and over and over again, and you'll get it. And it's not that I read it, and I read it, and then it sunk in because my comprehension all of a sudden picked up. I read it, and I read it, and I read it, and I read it, and I churned it over and over until all of a sudden, boom, something jumped out at me, and the whole thing opened up and started to make sense. And the exhilaration, the excitement was not an intellectual experience. The exhilaration and the excitement was a religious experience. It was this, it was this moment of, of, of being open to something that came at me from somewhere else. So it's, it's, it's as if when we churn something over and over with its familiarity, we actually get back to that unadulterated, silent, magical point of origin that is beyond ourselves and that's outside our own understanding and that allows for our, allows for our experience to genuinely give us access to something that is other than ourselves. Now, if I, can, if I can start to pull all the pieces together, I, I think I can suggest, and I had the chutzpah to say this to Goertz, I think I can suggest that even though Goertz was not, not richly educated as a Jew, he knew, he knew a lot, but um, he, by the way, the man had the most phenomenal general knowledge you can imagine. He was really frightening to talk to. Um, he um, clearly was comfortable with me suggesting to him that his method of thick description was just like the way the Talmud studies stuff. He said, oh, that's interesting, that sounds about right, that's true. There seems to be, there seems to be a, a, an ethos in, in Jewish learning and in Jewish thinking that I believe is played out in a very, very interesting way as far as this lecture series has been concerned in the thinking of Wittgenstein, Derrida, and Geertz. I picked Wittgenstein, Derrida, and Geertz because all three of them are Jewish non-Jews, or non-Jewish Jews, right? Wittgenstein wasn't actually Jewish, if you remember. He was Catholic, he was raised Catholic. 
He had three Jewish grandparents, so he was, by Nazi definitions, he was a full-blooded Jew because he had three Jewish grandparents. But by halachic definitions, in terms of Jewish law, he had the wrong, he had the wrong one, right? His maternal grandmother was not Jewish. But, but, but he clearly lived on the fringe of Judaism and was connected to Judaism. And his method was to generate, again, this sense of a white noise through the self-referential nature of language. And Wittgenstein was the person who brought that into the, into the modern philosophical discourse. And by looking at, this, at what is self-referential about language, he created a space for what was outside of language, and there, there he placed the mystical, right? Those of you who remember, that ultimately, once you've figured out how language works, what you need to do is leave it, leave it and recognize that everything that can be said can be said clearly, and anything that cannot be said should be passed over in silence. Remember that one? So there's this, there's this, there's this sense of, of, of a thick web, a thick network of discourse, which leaves me open to something which is radically other and outside of myself. But it's going to come at me from the outside. It's going to surprise me. It's outside. That is, that's Wittgenstein. What we looked at when we looked at Derrida was the idea that God will not be subjected to the categories of human ethics, remember? God will not be subjected to the categories of human ethics and God will reveal himself to humanity, at least in the biblical narrative, by forcing us to sacrifice ethics. Thank you. Um, that was a very salty something or other that left me very thirsty. Delicious, but... <laughs> but there was, there was, there was, there was this, this radical experience of being, of, being, of being so obsessed in the network of human thought that if I ever wanted to break out of it, and remain open to something that, that is actually outside of it, then I have to recognize that, that, that human thought is not metaphysical. I have to recognize that it's really only a network, a network of all sorts of assumptions, all sorts of ethical categories, all sorts of convictions, all sorts of loyalties, all sorts of beliefs, which, which are fundamentally challenged by God when God commands Abraham to deal with the experience of the secret and it's at that moment that Abraham develops this potential, this capacity for encountering God in his divinity rather than encountering God in this reflection of humanity that would, that would have lost all of its authenticity. So that was Derrida. And now with Geertz, we're looking at somebody. And here I think the structure, it, it applies both horizontally and vertically. Right? Horizontally, it's just as important. I'll say vertically first, but this notion of a thickly descriptive tradition that repeats and rereads and reconsiders texts and goes over and over and over in these thick webs and networks in order to remain open to the thing that will come in from the outside, that's the vertical. Being open to that surprise, which is, which is a crack, a crack in the fabric of the world as we know it that we can look through and for a moment, get a glimpse of the divine, get a glimpse of something that, that, is, that is other than ourselves, that we know is coming at us from the outside. 
that would be a vertical description of it. But by the same token, and you can say this as you read the Torah, if you don't believe the Torah is divinely authored, you can say the same thing about the Torah, and you can talk about it in, in horizontal terms and say that we encounter a text or we encounter another culture. And the real challenge is, can we engage with that other in its otherness and still understand it ourselves? And the answer seems to be, not really. There's incommensurability between God and man, just like there's incommensurability between, between people. There's incommensurability all around us. We don't understand. We don't understand other cultures. We don't understand, we don't understand even the people next to us. We don't really know what's going on. Whoever knows what's really going on. But there's the possibility of breaking something open when our familiarity is expressed not in terms of definition, not in terms of categorization, not in terms of understanding, but in terms of repetitive description. And when we engage in repetitive description and visit and revisit and look again and again and again at that ritual or at that face or listen to that speech or listen to that expression or hear that story, and we hear that same story. Whoever tells the story more and more and over and over, the more you do it, the better. Right? This retelling, this recycling, again, allows us to develop a sense of something, something that will encounter us from outside that will give us that will give us a surprise and that will allow us to use our experience to be less dogmatic and to bring in something new that that opens up our minds that expands our universe and deepens our experience of what it is to be human now the big fear in modernity was its categorizations the big fear the big problem with modernity was the clarity of its convictions, the essentialism of its, of its definitions. Things that were true had to be always true and under every circumstances they had to be true. What, post what the postmodern critique has done is to undervalue the idea of truth and to suggest that a quintessential truth, a definitive truth, is, is undesirable. That a definitive truth which does not consider the possibility that the other, whether that other is another person, another culture, or a god, the other might see things differently, and therefore my truth is always going to be contingent, partial, and defined within a particular context. Now, the struggle, this might sound strange, but the struggle that the postmodern critique is trying to, is trying to prevail in is the struggle against the violence and the oppression and the tyranny that goes with absolute truth. It's a struggle against metaphysics. It's a, a struggle against absolutes. And what seems to me to be one of the deepest insights about the Jewish, in the Jewish tradition, and I don't think I'm making this stuff up. I mean, I believe that it really reverberates in the classics of the Jewish texts, in the way that they're constructed, in the way in which the discourse is built is that the Jewish tradition is a tradition that believes passionately in God, but doesn't conceive of God 
in metaphysical terms. The Jewish tradition tries to thickly describe the idea of God. The Jewish tradition tries to work within the world. That's an idea that we're very used to hearing, that, that Judaism is about this world, not about the next world. It's about mitzvot. It's about living life in its, in its very concrete way. Right? This was, of course, the critique of Christianity, that Judaism, as we are, as we know it, is the Judaism of the flesh, while Christianity has, 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 has attained something more ephemeral, the, the, the Judaism of the spirit. Right? That's an old construct that I don't think applies to much of Christianity today. But the, the idea that Judaism is of the flesh, that it's marked in the flesh, that it's lived in the flesh, that its focus is on this world and on the careful description and analysis of this world. This was what Soloveitchik, of course, tried to do with the halakha. He turns the halakha into a mechanism for describing everything in this world. These are concrete descriptive devices Jewish law has something to say about absolutely everything in this world. It's not going to tell you anything about the world to come. You won't find any detailed halachot about what you're supposed to do after you're dead. Right? There's no, there's no instructions. Right? You're just flying by the seat of your pants when that happens. But while you're living in this world, if you have a seat or if you're flying or if there are pants, but who knows? While you're in this world, you are dealing very, very concretely. Judaism doesn't think in abstract terms. It doesn't define. It doesn't categorize. The Jewish law is described in terms of concrete exemplification. Such and such did this. Such and such said you're supposed to do that. Not in terms of abstract principle. There's this attempt, which seems to me to be very powerful in the Jewish tradition, to describe. We know about God from countless stories that we're told about stuff that happens in the world. We're not told anything about what happens up there. There's none of that. We don't know anything about it. There's no description of it. There's no portrayal of it. The Bible virtually virtually avoids it completely and what in, in my view when it's not avoiding it it's still avoiding it if you're thinking of Ezekiel 1 I don't think Ezekiel 1 really gives us a portrayal of God it gives us a portrayal of a human imaginative experience that's another conversation we spoke about prophecy last time I'm not gonna not gonna go back there but 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 when we when we think about the Jewish tradition in its non-metaphysical way I think we get a sense of the religious and of the religious experience, not as something that takes us out of this world, but as something that flashes a little light through a crack in this world, and that will only strike us when we are there, when we're ready for it, when we're familiar enough with what is around us to be surprised. To have that moment where something hits us and we go, ah, that was wonderful. That was special. That was a surprise. I could have never seen that coming. That popped out of nowhere. In a place, in, in a place where I feel at home. Humanity is not supposed to feel not at home in the world. And the postmodern critique is doing the same thing. Saying, get away from those absolutes that you think are going to be universal and transcendent and, and break you out of the limitations of any place and time and, and define things that will be true under all circumstances in absolute metaphysical terms. And it's saying that that's, that's not the way to actually notice the other. That's not the way to hear the other. 
When I do that, I'm crushing the other. Just like that anthropologist saying, hmm, I can watch their rituals and I can explain to them much better than they can what they're actually doing and why. What their real motives are, what's really got them. They don't realize that they've got a Freudian Oedipus complex and that's why they're burning that snake on their ears. They, you know, they, this, this kind, of, this kind of, of anthropological description loses all sensitivity to who the other actually is, whether that other is another person or God. The, 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 distinction, the distinction here is, is, is immaterial. So what I'm saying here is that I think there's a tremendous potential and a tremendous ability to gain access to some of the deepest and subtlest and richest methods of thinking about the religious experience within the Jewish tradition when we look at it through the prism of, of postmodern thought. And that's what this, that's what this series was originally, originally designed to to uh, explore with you. There's, there's one final thing that I want to not say. Thank you. No, there's one, thank you and good night. Um, there's, there's, there's one final thing that I want, I want to not say. I'll be very careful about this because I don't want to completely not say it. I think it's very important that a lot of the a lot of the postmodern thinkers, a lot of the important ones are Jewish. I think it's very interesting that a lot of them are really edgy Jewish on the outside of Judaism. I think, I think that's a very interesting phenomenon. By the way, it's not true of all of them. There are postmodern thinkers who are much more deeply connected to the Jewish tradition. Um, and there are, believe it or not, postmodern thinkers who aren't Jewish at all. Lots of them. So I'm not trying to say that postmodernism is a Jewish phenomenon. And there are many, many people who, who have tried to make that argument. And I think it's flawed. I think it's a mistake. But I'm not completely not saying it either. Like there's, there's, there is something. There is something. It does, it, does seem to be, it does seem to be interesting when we think about Derrida's deconstruction and compare it to the way the Midrash operates. And when we, when we look at Geertz's thick description and look at, at, at Wittgenstein's webs of language with the language games and think about the way in which the Talmud operates. There is something that seems to be very... But I don't want to say that. What I do want to say, and this really is the final, the final message. Those of you who months ago or two days ago heard my opening lecture, um, I came here to talk about uh, Judaism in an age of sovereignty, and I said there were three big challenges facing the Jewish world, and I said sovereignty, um, feminism, and postmodernism. We've spoken quite a lot about so sovereignty. We just had one serious session on feminism because I was scared to do any more. Um, I'm not sure who I was scared of, but I was scared by virtually everybody. And the third one was the third one was postmodernism. But. This, this series was the one that was supposed to address that aspect of an opening lecture that unfortunately I had to give months ago. Um, but there was a point, and, and, and here it is. The point is to say that I think it's very ironic that in our world today, Jews feel very comfortable with modern thinking because the history of modern thinking is that it challenged Judaism very, very profoundly. The Jewish world had to adapt to modernity if you look at 18th and 19th century Germany, it was a, it was a, a tremendously difficult challenge. How, how are we going to be Jewish in the modern world? How are we going to hold on to our tradition and, and deal with all of this science? It, it, was, it tore the Jewish world into, into, into pieces. And now, 
positivist dogmatism seems to be associated with religious conviction in the Jewish world. It's weird, but the very people who resisted modernity most powerfully 150 years ago are the ones who are most modernist about the truth claims that they make for their own religious convictions today, or non-religious convictions. It's really ironic, right? It really is ironic. Um, this kind of hardline halachic positivism that you can encounter, encounter in certain areas of orthodoxy, or the opposite, hardline anti-theological positivism or reformist positivism. You can find it in all sorts of places where people are completely certain about the things that they do and that they're the right interpretation of how we're supposed to be Jewish in the modern world. What I think is interesting is that we're living in a time where, where these modern assumptions that were so threatening to us are now being overturned. And I believe that we're entering into a period which is much, much, much more hospitable philosophically to traditional Jewish thought than anything that was common in the modern world. So whether or not Judaism and postmodernism are, 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 are connected historically, or whether or not it was Jews who brought about the linguistic turn and created, you know, generated this, this launch into postmodernism, I don't know. I don't think it's very true. I think it's a little bit true. But what I think is interesting is that we are living in a time where the, where the way in which philosophy is going seems to resonate very sympathetically with something that I feel is very authentic about the Jewish tradition. We're developing a relativized notion of the truth. We're developing a relativized notion of ethics. And we're developing a relativized notion of categorical definition and moving over to a world in which thick description is becoming the bon ton. It's striking. So our religious ethos and our intellectual ethos are much more at home in the context of today's thinking than they have been for generations before. And I think that is just something that we should A, notice, B, celebrate, and C, capitalize upon and use as a route back to our own authenticity because we have pr paid tremendous prices in our own authenticity. And I'm gonna be crude and a little bit rude right now. So forgive, no, I'm not gonna grab some burp or something, but I'm gonna say that it is, it is a tragedy how inaccessible Jewish texts are to the vast majority of Jews in the world. It is a tragedy how inaccessible this incredibly rich tradition is to the vast majority of Jews around the world. And I believe we're, we're, at, we're moving into a time where the kind of thinking that is dominating the world around us resonates very richly and opens up remarkable opportunities for understanding when we return to our texts. Uh, if you can do it in Hebrew, do it in Hebrew. If you can do it in Aramaic, do it in Aramaic. If you can do it in English, do it in English. doesn't matter. But this really is an invitation to, to, to recognize that there is, a, there is a tremendous richness of experience that is accessible in our tradition's canon, which resonates, I think, very deeply with some of the intuitions that are at the cutting edge of today's thinking. It's a phenomenal opportunity to jump in 
and to and to and to get involved. And I'm I'm not just talking about attending lectures. I'm talking about actually going through that experience of picking up the book and struggling through it and reading it and rereading it. Not just with the question, can I understand this? Can I identify with this? But is there a surprise here waiting for me that when it jumps out at me, it will give me contact, it will give me access to something that is really coming at me from the outside. And when, when you experience that once or twice, you get hooked. It's incredible. It's incredible. It has a, it has a phenomenal power to it. So so I guess with a little bit of chutzpah, that's that's part of my that's part of my closing message, which is is which is which is reclaim something which is phenomenal, and you'll be amazed by just how current it is, how relevant it is, and what power of experience is just waiting there, to be discovered when you give it enough patience because thick description is hard work repetition is hard work mantric repetition of the same words over and over again it's hard work but when the surprise jumps off the page it's incredible it's absolutely incredible so that's my that's my message that's my blessing um, and I suppose if this is the last evening lecture then this is also an opportunity for me um, again, first of all, to say thank you to Ari for hosting all of this and for making it for making it possible, along with the other million things that you do. Um, but more than anything else, it's really an opportunity uh, for me once again to tell you that you are all very special to me. Um, you shared with me um, one of the one of the big one of the big events in my life, um, and coming back here has been has been incredibly incredibly powerful and wonderful for me. So. Thank you for putting up with me a second time. It's really been a great pleasure. Laila Tov. Questions? Brian. Yeah, on your first step, thanks very much. And please read this, by the way. I didn't read it out with you, but it's phenomenal. Read it. Now you'll be able to understand it. But I have problems at both ends of what you said. So let me present that. The first end is kind of the superficial end, because I think that all of us sometimes have an aha experience at the first glance. Like we, Never. You, I mean, <laughs> when I think about, you know, maybe not with Thomas, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but I mean, you look it up, you look at a, a painting by Picasso and you get cubism and you say, oh my God, you know, the way he's seeing the world just opens up something for me. And it's not like I have to study it forever, just like, boom, it happens. Or you listen to a music, you listen to Jimi Hendrix play guitar and you think, I've never heard anything like that. It's a whole new different way of playing guitar, understanding what music is. So, you know, so I it's think called it being high. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Grateful Dead. Oh, Hendrix died of pneumonia. Well, he aspirated, but anyway. But the, 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 what I'm saying is sometimes it isn't, you know, it isn't, it's easier than you make it. So that's the one end. And then the other end that I have concerns about is when you talk about this thick description, singing from the left and the right and above and below, I'm not sure how that doesn't become, you're, you're not inserting your own kind of subjective kind of sense when you move to the left or the right, that doesn't become sort of an analysis. Well, you know, and, and maybe not as crude as saying I'm going to take a Freudian look at it, but now I'm going to look at it in terms of it's, you know, historical understanding by moving to the right, or now I'm going to look at it 
in terms of what I understand about this other tribe over here, or what I understand about, I just read some Lebanus, and I'm going to compare that to what the Talmud says here. So, you know, it becomes kind of this um, interpretive, analytic kind of stuff. And I don't know where you draw the line and say description ends here, analysis begins there. I mean, wasn't that one of the critiques of the whole postmodern thing? So I have trouble with the beginning and the end. Of okay, so saying. wonderful question. Thank you. Yes. Um, for the beginning, um, I'm, I'm not very interested in that aha at the beginning. I mean, it can happen. Uh, it also cannot happen. If it does, I wouldn't get too excited about it. Um, I think it's a big problem, by the way. People get very excited by their initial aha, and then and then they expect it every day and every time. And and it's just not like that. And and nothing nothing real has has happened apart from that little aha. Um, tends to be self-serving. Um, I don't think I, I I'm not sure if I not sure if I buy it. Maybe maybe for some, but it's that's not what I'm talking about. But the other end is much much is a much much more challenging and more difficult question. And the answer is that you're probably right most of the time. That's exactly the point. Um, it. it the idea of, of, of thick description is that its thickness is comprised of all of those subjectivities all the time. That's exactly the point. That's what you're working through. It's, it's going from a single sound to white, to white noise and silence. So each one of the sounds in, 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 this, in this overwhelming cacophony of, 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 of observations is exactly flawed in the way that you're describing. That's precisely the point. Every time I drive along that road, when I'm not seeing what I'm not seeing, what I'm seeing is flawed. It's selective. That's exactly the point. But it's from within that experience and, and, and going back and back and rereading and reading and rereading and rereading that when something strikes you that hasn't been there, that's the thing that you grab onto. And that's the thing that, that becomes becomes the crystallized focal point of what you've learned. And that's really the way that Goethe describes it. It's, it's visiting the same ritual a thousand times and, and looking at it from every angle a thousand times and then something happens. And, it, that, and it, it's at that moment and only from within the perspective of tremendous accumulated experience that, that the encounter itself has, has a... Has a um, has a meaning that, that, that reflects something other. There's a wonderful phrase in the book of Psalms that you might know from the prayers, we say it on, on Hala. But it's, it goes as follows, Right? That all of the people should, should, should worship God. All the people in the world, by the way, it's not referring to the Jews. Everybody in the world should worship God and praise Him. Why? Because we have been overwhelmed by his mercy. Now that's an incredible phrase. This gaval has, 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 has a it has an almost uh, um, been overtaken. The gvor al is is to really power over them, right? Um, it's got very masculine connotations. Gevel, gaval is man, right? But there is gaval alenu chasdol. It's a weird combination. Gaval. For Chesed, which is which is his, which is his mercy, right? So it's a remarkable little little phrase. Now this idea of being so overwhelmed by something and so completely taken over by it, so totally immersed in it, 
that when that when that happens, there's a moment there's a moment of seeing of seeing his mercy, of seeing chesed. I think I think that idea, right, which is which is um, part of our, our liturgy, is part of our prayers, is is a way of reflecting um, on the difference between what you're talking about and what I'm talking about. I think there's that moment when you where you stop trying to understand and you just become overwhelmed. And that's a moment that becomes a rega chesed, it becomes, it becomes a moment of grace, it becomes a moment of insight. And, and that, that is what I think is being described here. It's not, it's not the same as new information, right? Oh, I never knew that, wow, oh, that, that's transformative. I never, that's not what we're talking about. Um, because you can be surprised by, by something that you experience deeply within your own subjectivity. That's possible. Of course that's possible. I mean, it does all the time. We turn on the TV and we see something that, was, that just never happened before. Oh, gosh, I knew it was something like that. Right? That doesn't mean that, you've, been, that you've, you've encountered something that allowed you to transcend, transcend the limits of your own subjectivity. It's not new information that we're talking about here. It's the, it's the encounter from within familiarity of something that is other. It's when it's positioned deeply within the familiar that the otherness is perhaps outside of your own subjectivity. That, that's the framing of it. And, and I think that's the, that's the way the Geertz describes it, and I think that's the way, I think that's the, way the, the, the Jewish learning thinks of Chidush as well. I think, I think it belongs to exactly the same phenomenology. Yes. Give one, just give one more question. I give you long answers. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> well, good questions. What am I supposed to do? Yeah. I'm wondering if you could describe. Uh, uh, subjectively, what's your view of God? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. That's one minute, please. I'll give you a Wittgensteinian answer. That was it. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>